Hi, I'm Suparna Goswami. I'm Associate Editor with Information Security Media Group. I have the pleasure of speaking with Guy Shepard, former head of APAC Financial Crime Compliance Initiatives at SWIFT and currently the General Manager of Financial Services at Abortus Data Innovation. Guy, so glad to finally meet you in person. We Likewise. have been talking for the past couple of years now. We have, we have. Great. Guy, uh, you have moved to Abortus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know it's a, it's more than a 100-year-old conglomerate headquartered out of Philippines. Mm-hmm. So please tell us about Abortus Data Innovation and briefly your role here. Yeah, sure. So Abortus Group is, as you say, so it's 105 years old. And I think one of the fascinating things about Abortus is you have so many different verticals. So there's Aboitis Power, the financial services uh, business units include Union Bank, the City Savings Bank, PetNet, with what we hope will be a Union Digital, which is in the process of having its uh, digital banking license approved. And the story of ADI, Aboitis Data Innovation, is quite unique in that it started off predictably as a group function. And because of its strategic priority as an enabler to the group to become, uh, in terms of our ambition, to become the most uh, technology-enabled conglomerate, a tech conglomerate by 2025. You know, ADI is now a separate subsidiary of Aboitis Equity Ventures. So we have based out of Singapore and, of course, the Philippines. So ADI is a data science, data modeling powerhouse, in short. Sure. So, Guy, as you mentioned, the Aboitis Data Innovation is the data science and the data engineering. Mm-hmm. It's in the data science and the data engineering space. So now we know that the key to data science starts with data access and data sharing. Mm-hmm. Abortus, like I mentioned, is a big conglomerate. So how are you approaching these issues of data sharing with multiple companies under Abortus without really compromising on security mm. or privacy for that matter? Sure. So this was, I think, one of the biggest fundamental challenges for us as a huge conglomerate group of very different industries. And I would highlight industries of different levels of maturity to data and technology. Like at one end, you have financial services and you know industries like construction, they don't necessarily go hand in hand with data modeling and, and techno- technology-based innovation in, fact, in that sense. completely different. I'm trying to say it very <laughs> diplomatically, but we, we have the whole spectrum and we're in the Philippines, right? Mm. We're not in Singapore. Mm. So again, it's a market that still has emerging and developing views on, on data protection, the use of data and data modeling. So the biggest single issue was being able to gain access to sensitive data sets, production data, not test, but production data, which could be customer transactional payment information, that sort of pricing, customer segmentation information, uh, various, all sorts of different things. And the challenges we encountered in the early stages is obviously there is the usual suspects of requiring data cleanup, better taxonomy, some universal labeling system, but physically getting, um, allowing our data scientists to interact with the data product without huge lengthy legal agreements and also being able to reassure our business owners that their data was going to be managed and interacted with securely and they wouldn't lose control. So we actually partnered with a business called Harbor and uh, Amazon Web Services to develop a product we call Parlay, which is a secure by design data exchange platform, um, which fundamentally allows a data product owner perpetual control of who can access their data. And to the point where 
it's quite smooth and quite slick, which helps us manage our internal customers in the sense that they can elect different named users to subscribe to that data set and also then enable those privileged users down to the individual. So it's not just if you have an email address at aboitis.com, you can access it, but named users. And at the same time, you can create a secure workspace where you have data modeling, data an analysis tools like Python or R programming languages or SQL. So the, the analogy that's quite nice is if you go to an art museum, um, if I went to the Louvre in Paris and I wanted to see the Mona Lisa, I still get to interact with that piece of art, but I don't expect to take it home with me. And the challenge with kind of traditional data sharing agreements is what it boils down to is even if I have data tokenization, I still have to trust you, Supana, that you will, after this piece of work is concluded, mm. delete, destroy Good. all records, mm. all backup records of my data. I mean, that's the fundamental premise. And that once it's left the institution, you effectively lose control of it. Whereas in our world, we wanted a way to be able to federate access to data without it ever leaving this secure enclave which also through AWS and the different hosting arrangements we have with them, particularly in Asia Pacific, you still have lots of um, governments and regulators insisting on data not leaving sovereign shores. So there's multiple ways in which we can satisfy those requirements. And you have all the usual bits and bobs like ISO 27001 certification and cyber essentials. So it's, it literally is secure by design. And I, I say this with confidence because on the other side of the field, I have seen lots of products that quote secure by design. And that means you can't ever access anything. You can't interact with anything. And this is actually a very free moving user experience, which has enabled us to federate data from all different parts of Aboitis and create models much, much faster, on average 50% faster than before we were using Harbor. So we're building, we have a faster time to market. We have collaborative uh, tools and workspaces built into our, our platform. And we, our goal at the moment is to develop this as an ecosystem for the group. Sure. So the, the journey or what you said is absolutely fascinating. So I'm sure the financial industry can take a lot of things from here. There's a lot of learnings from the financial industry from here on how to share data securely. So are any, there any examples you can share for our audience there who are from the financial industry space or for any, for any industry for that matter? Yeah, hmm. well, I think, I think for me, and obviously, you know, if I take my SWIFT background into account, my, the depth of my experience is in financial crime. Um, prevention of, I hasten to add. Um, and a challenge for so many practitioners is around data access, but also I think a grim accept acceptance across the industry that we have rules-based engines that are inefficient, but meet a regulatory expectation of the type of thing you should have bolted in as your core AML um, kind of tool set and, and framework. And I think one of the biggest challenges, so if I break it down, the key to AI and machine learning is access to data, like it has to, and it has to be production data. Um, and the ability to rapidly prototype and then fine tune this, 
because you have machine learning, which, you know, the clue's in the title, right? The machine needs to learn mm. to improve levels of effectiveness, efficiency, accuracy, all that good stuff. Um, so the key is being able to monetize data. However, the challenge is always, we know that regulators are pushing a fintech and regtech agenda hard, right? Mm. And, and this has been a constant, whether you're in Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Mumbai, Tokyo, uh, Beijing, right? Like this is a constant. You should be using technology to get faster, smarter, and better at this job. The challenge becomes that kind of final mile, if I use the telecoms example, of how you fundamentally share your data with a fintech or regtech third party or even some of your customers. And I think that's really where, whether it's you know Harbor or Parlay, that's where you need a secure mechanism, which will satisfy uh, legal and governance procedures to be able to literally interact and collaborate with these third party vendors. Now, assuming that you can accomplish that, like then this for me has been the steepest learning curve. So if I look at some of the models we've deployed, we have one that is that we're in the process of deploying a, a number of our internal institutions, which is a mule account detection scenario. So what we did is because we have access to this federated data, we can then use as a baseline all of the previously detected or reported mule accounts. We can model that transactional behavior. So quite literally, you almost have like a thumbprint of what the machine knows is historically mule account behavior. Mm. And then we can pattern match all of our existing account behaviors against that because we can process this in real time. And then we start to get not just a score, because I think a score is a clue, but what we want to understand are which accounts are behaving differently, right? That's the first conclusion. And there may be very positive reasons for that. This may be that this customer has outgrown their existing segmentation and there are revenue uplift opportunities where we can cross sell additional products to satisfy someone that has matured as a customer. And then those that start unfortunately to echo the behaviors that the machine knows are those that appear or could be perceived to be mule behaviors. They would then go into a dashboard for much closer inspection and monitoring by our financial crime teams. And from there, we have a new series of alerts that are generated. So it's going from a very reactive, I wouldn't say hit and miss, but a less accurate type of approach to a real time and dynamic model. And the, the thing that is really exciting is that the model learns. So when we first deployed this, we were looking at 90%. We had a 90% or more certainty that an account was not a mule. Hmm. Um, and by inference, we had, uh, I think we were scoring about 80% accuracy in detecting mule behaviors hmm. to then further segment to, is this a true or a false positive? And those percentages have increased exponentially as we continue to train these models with more and more data. And as our analysts can then go, all oh, right, like these are additional sub criteria that would explain that. So yeah. this is not artificial intelligence as in it's locked in a box and we never interact with it. This is a very interactive codependent experience. And I think that's what is for me has been the big learning curve. This is not some Skynet setup where it's sentient and just does what it needs to do. You have to constantly spend time with these models to train and tune them. 
but the the win is super clear that we are much much better at detecting this type of this type of behavior which has also led us to then start looking at because we can use cluster analysis to then start looking at the additional relationships that we see in the data between accounts that have been targeted or are suspected of illicit behavior and who they interact with across mm. the wider network that starts to get really interesting so it's if i break it down it's you have to you have to have fast ready access to production production levels of data that makes your business comfortable that that is a given without it everything else is is just um pie in the sky but once you've achieved that then you can start to model and interact with your data to identify known unknowns like we don't know why this is happening and we can then start to really drill down to very granular levels and it's it's not all doom and gloom one of the areas that we're really proud about is as a result of the kind of uniqueness of our business we have power data and we yeah. also have mm -hmm. bank data so we've been able to to develop an alternative credit scoring model for customers in more emergent or rural parts of the Philippines which is a problem that is very very scalable and applicable to the wider parts of Asia and one of our key mission statements at Union Bank is to be the go-to bank for fintechs that's what we want to do but as we've heard from across the industry fintechs have very irregular business models mm. which means that when they present these accounts to banks to open corporate bank accounts the rejection rate is quite high and this is a real challenge so we can score those using non-traditional methods looking at um, other data points outside of the the legacy series of documents that you would expect to open a bank account which they may not have or may not meet a risk appetite to be able to lend with confidence to a much wider range of customers than we would have done previously but that model was constructed of power consumption put and then mapped against different social demographic data points for us to then be able to understand a propensity to default so it's a series of problems that you can look at once you have the data from every different angle and that's what makes for me data science so exciting i know you have worked with swift for around 8 years and have a great mm. understanding of how ai can be leveraged and my previous conversation with you was around artificial intelligence sure so please tell our audience how ai can be used to detect suspicious transactions and how to move from static to say dynamic rule set sure so the big challenge and we've kind of touched on it is particularly with transaction monitoring it's a very wide spectrum that you're looking for this is the original needle in the haystack situation so there are more typologies than we have ever seen in a single point of history from regulators there is now um potential animal trafficking typologies there are human trafficking typologies you have potential fraud typologies so we're looking for more than we've ever had to look before and the fundamental challenge for a lot of these fi's as i said is there is a regulatory expectation mm. that a known vendor or a system with 
with fairly non-complex construction and methodology at its heart is going to be something they're going to find when they when they come knocking for an inspection so you we have moved to a space where you have these unwieldy rules-based systems that are spitting out either far too many or not enough alerts usually it's the former and it's incredibly difficult for FIs to reconfigure and adopt a much more agile way of interacting with their systems. So, you know, and many of these, the original programming team or the original onboarding team have long since left the bank. So these become these kind of sacrosanct holy cows that sit there and no one really wants to interact with it. And I think the difference is the entire industry, I don't think there's a single compliance practitioner that wouldn't disagree with the fact that the levels of efficiency in transaction monitoring have been deplorable. Like 99.95, I think, or, or 99% plus is the usual inefficiency rate, right? So it is needle in haystack territory. And I think the difference you get when you move to AI machine learning systems is is twofold. The first, you move from this very static, retrospective approach to changing something. Mm. We're in a constant state of change, so you need to be agile to respond to that. Plus, you have legacy rules in there that are going to be spitting out alerts that the parameters of those have long since changed, mm. right? But we, we don't want to switch them off because, you know, like there was a very sound reason for having deployed them in the first place. So I think the difference, and I don't think it's either or in the short term is my conclusion. I think these complement one another. And I think where the industry is working back from is now we have a huge ton of alerts from a system. How do we then in turn prioritize those? I think most FIs are already on that page. And I think now what, what I think some of the more um, forward thinking are looking at is how do we run these in parallel and start to look at the results. And that was a similar experience for us at Union where we actually took as a baseline what is the um, universe of customers that satisfies some but not all of our core alerts. So we're still staying true to what we see as the risks across a transactional data set. But which of those that haven't generated an alert perhaps should have done, mm. but have slightly different behaviors than those prescribed by our system, which we know at the moment is a source of truth, but it's a view, right? It's not necessarily all encompassing. And that created some really interesting new targets for us to look at because you have to believe, and I do, I'm always a glass is half full, you have to believe that whoever sat down on day one and constructed those risks that would then generate an alert or flag Guy Shepherd as a person of interest, you know, there was truth behind that. There was a thinking, there was a methodology that stood the test of time. So to prescribe throwing that all out the window and starting from a blank page, I think is, is disrespectful and I also think it's inefficient. Mm. So we're more about a a process of improving on what we know is inefficient to start to target parts of our population in terms of transactions that may have just changed behaviors that are still in that risk bracket but are not showing up on an alert. We're, we're trying to point the torch in a different part of the room. Sure. Guy, fascinating conversation. Amazing to know that how within the conglomerate you are able to have data, in fact, correlate data from one industry, which is completely different, say a power industry, to a, or a construction industry, 
to a financial industry. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much. You're welcome. And I'm sure there's a lot of learning for the financial or any industry for that out to our listeners out there. So thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you and very it was much. It's a pleasure Sipana. to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. You were listening to Guy Shepherd for ISMG. This is Suparna Goswami. Thank you so much for listening.